0: Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. It's been uh, quite a quiet time since the World Championship, but the the new season about to get going again. And this is a special podcast because uh, I had the chance to sit down with Jason Francis, who's got a new book out detailing his time running the Snooker Legends Tour. And I had a chance to talk to Jason about that and also his time with Ronnie O'Sullivan and now the new Seniors Tour that uh, he's starting in association with the WPBSA. The book is called Snooker Legends on the Road and Off the Table with the Games Greatest. A lot of great stories in there about the likes of Alex Higgins, Jimmy White, Ronnie as well and Jason's time sort of building up the legends and it's been a bit of a roller coaster for him but as I say he's now looking to press on and run the seniors tour and provide some of the older players with opportunities to be competitive again. So uh, this is Jason Francis on the podcast, hope you enjoy our chat. Okay, well, Jason, thanks for for coming on the podcast. And uh, before we get into the the legends and the, and the seniors, we'll talk about your early days because I'm sat here with a, with a snooker champion. You were Cornish under twenty one champion.
1: Yeah, well, it's uh, it's funny that people often ask how I got involved in the sport, and I'm I'm a bit like a lot of people. You know, I probably I played as a youngster. I got the bug for it when I when I kind of left home to go and, and go and do my education. I I didn't play for ten twelve years. Mm. So then the problem is you start to pick up a cue again and you remember why you loved it but uh yeah I mean I I was never good enough to be a professional let's let's make that very clear um but I came from a you know Cornwall had a real stronghold especially all the uh, there was tables everywhere if you think of the tin mines and things like that they all had working men's clubs and things like that so it was a it was a rich history I mean I started off playing billiards funnily enough that's what my granddad played So um, but we're
0: talking 80s aren't we so we're talking yeah. like boom time snookers everywhere
1: Absolutely so you're talking I, I first got uh, inside a snooker hall in about 81 something like that and uh, and I kind of kind of lived there for 5 years I guess mm. So uh, that was the kind of daily routine I came from a very small village it didn't have a pub in the village right. So <laughs> you know you didn't it was kind of the social centre Yeah um, and it was always... Uh, it always struck me really strange. It's like, you know, the village had a, a men's institute, as it was then, and a women's institute. And we could go in the women's institute, and uh, they always had things like talks on gardening and things like that. But you, this, you the men's institute was, like, very much still in the old ages. I mean, there was only one day a year that women could go in there. Mm. When they would give out the trophies, they'd allow <laughs> women to... I mean, it's crazy, isn't yeah. it? They'd allow women. But and until you got... So you got to 11 or 12, you could then begin to be accompanied by a member. But uh, yeah, that, that, they were great times, that was my childhood. Mm. So before sort of snooker legends
0: and everything, and, and the two tied together, you were involved in theatre and theatre events, so mm. you became involved in putting things on, and also you, you, you sort of strayed into the acting sphere very briefly, I think.
1: <laughs> yeah, so, so alongside the, uh, the kind of snooker in my childhood, my, my mother and father were part of an amateur dramatic group, And so you were kind of dragged along there and then thrown into doing shows and getting on stage and I Guess it was that kind of uh, it was a family thing. Mm -hmm. You never thought anything about it getting up on stage and learning to dance and sing and uh, again, they were good times and when I uh, I Finished my O levels as they were and I did did my A levels and I did theatre studies as one of them and I really enjoyed it Um, I got a place at uh, a drama school in Guildford, which was one of the top schools at the time, so I kind of left home and in effect followed. left the snooker queue at home, went to drama school, uh, had three great years in Guildford, and uh then probably was a, a bad actor for five or six years, <laughs> <laughs> um, trawling around, you know, you dig out old episodes of Casualty or The Bill, you'll find me somewhere okay. uh, yeah. around there, but <clears throat> yeah, it was... uh all the time I found myself, rather than concentrating on furthering myself as an actor, I'd sit there and I'd think, I wonder how that's put on. Mm. Look at the way they're producing that. Who's written this? And I think that was more of an interest for me.
0: Yeah. You say in the book you, you did a... You describe it very mm. honestly as a bit of a disaster. You did a play about Joe Orton, who was a play, yeah. playwright himself, and that ran in London and you lost, lost a lot of money. It yeah, you yeah, lost
1: a fortune. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was so tough in those... You left drama school and you got a bit of work and... Uh, I got my equity card which at the time was everything you know you couldn't go anywhere without your equity card mm. this was before you know when reality TV yeah. stars could go on television for a week and suddenly be thrown mm. into main roles you had to you know I started off as an ASM what they call it um, running around getting sort of in theatres playing small roles getting the drinks in mm. making the props and uh, it was tough to get in front of casting directors really tough And uh, I'd done some research on this this playwright, and I thought, God, this guy's a real anarchic character. Those people who don't know much about Joe Orton, uh, the stuff he was kind of doing in the late 60s, you know, was nowadays, you know, you kind of, there are no barriers. But, you know, this guy was writing plays and, you know, uh, being thrown out of town. Mm. They were being shut down. There was riots going on. Um, He was incredibly anarchic. Mm. And... uh, I thought well he 's got an interesting story. he kept diaries. Uh, there was a gap between the last twenty four hours of his life when his his lover murdered him <laughs> so and I thought' oh, got there's, everything there 's a, bit, there's a bit of a story here <laughs> so i put I put the play on really to try and showcase myself as an actor mm. truthfully, I enjoyed writing it more. I enjoyed building the set and I say really not many people came to see it, and I picked up the bill <laughs>
0: mm. well, it can happen,
1: but uh, I think what
0: though, what comes through this book reading it. Is persistence Because you know There's been a lot of times Where you could have Just sort of packed in But you've kept going And that brings us nicely To the snooker legends What Firstly where was Where did you get the idea from it Obviously you've grown up Playing snooker But mm. then you kind of As you say put your cue down Got into other things When did you sort of Get back into, into it
1: i th- I, pref- uh, I created a, a theatre company In 97 with, with a mate That I'd, I'd been performing with And it was basically Children's theatre shows And for 10 years, it was incredibly successful. Mm. So we would get the rights to things like Bob the Builder, Thomas the Tank Engine. We'd write the show and we'd produce it under license Mm. and and tour it. And so therefore, it built up my connection with all the theaters, Um, obviously I learned how to produce a show, how to put on an event. Come 2009, 2010, we were getting a big drop off in audiences. And what was happening is that you know the revolution of the internet and phones and things was coming in. Yeah. And whereas before you would get nine, 10, sometimes 11 year olds coming along to the theater, suddenly you, know, you get above six or seven and they weren't interested. Mm. So we saw a decrease in market and we sat down and said, well look, we have to be careful here because there's a decline coming. What else do we know between us using the experience we've got that we can put on? And I thought, well, I know the sport of snooker, and there's no, in effect, seniors tour, or any vehicle for these guys who were household names. And I also thought I loved the game show Bullseye when I was young. That was Sunday nights for us. Yeah. And uh, I thought that could be a vehicle as an entertainment show. So we said, well, OK. And I wrote them and I kind of devised them. And I went and sat in front of... Well, I manufactured a situation to be in front of Jimmy White. it's the truth I got back involved a little bit in snooker and I proposed to the league that I was playing in why don't you have Jimmy White for an exhibition Mm. which is something they've never done and my idea was that I would wanted to sit there and say to Jimmy White look I'd like to create this thing called snooker legends and I'd like to take you and Alex Higgins back to the Crucible Theatre and, you know, as Jimmy famously said, they kind of laughed at me. Mm. You know, they thought that, well, you know, you can't have snooker at the Crucible. It's, uh, you know, only only the World Championships at the Crucible. And I don't think 2010, and then I don't think Jimmy had been for a few years, and obviously it had been a lot of years since Alex had played there. Mm. So uh, then I kind of produced the contract. And I said, well, actually, you know, I've, I've looked into this a bit, and yes, I can't put on competitive snooker with prize money, mm. but we can put on... An exhibition with appearance fees, without sort of contradicting. Mm. So I kind of sold on the idea. We uh, we put like seventeen shows in. Uh, Jimmy went off to the jungle, which was fantastic for for the profile yeah. at the time. It was that yeah. year, yeah. and uh, suddenly, you know, within like forty eight hours, the Crucible sold out, mm. and it was. I mean, it shocked me. I mean, I, th- I thought it could work. Mm. Meanwhile, Bullseye couldn't sell a ticket for, <laughs> for love nor money. Yeah.
0: But I guess, I mean, Jimmy obviously, as you say, massively popular, but also important to get him if you're going to get Alex because Alex and, and I mean, Alex fell out with everybody, but he loved Jimmy and would do anything for Jimmy.
1: Yes, I mean, I, th- I obviously uh, Jimmy was uh, the key to securing Alex. Jimmy also knew that Alex sold tickets, yeah. so I mean, you know, Jimmy jimmy wasn't surprised it had sold out and i think by jimmy's own admission jimmy would understand that probably the reason why that first season was selling so well was because here was a chance to see alex higgins play again Mm. in iconic venues surrounded by other legends with a kind of vip element to it which is something we took from our from my theater company Mm. never been done before i mean nowadays you can go to the world championship and you can you know, get a hospitality lunch, and those things are available back in 2010. We kind of started that. Mm. We gave access to the players, we did VIP receptions, we did you know, we merchandised, we you know, so I think we were the kind of first people to do that. And of course, that was right up Jimmy Street. I mean, much easier to turn up and be loved and pot a few balls under no pressure and get paid for it mm. than scrapping it out <laughs> in the qualifiers, yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. There's an incredible chapter about Alex, um, <clears throat> that detailing that whole night at the Crucible and kind of his, be- his behavior. And it, it kind of, I, reading it, it just sort of felt like I was almost reading the story of his life. You know, he kind of everyone, everyone loves him, everyone wants to see him. But then there's a row, there's an argument, and he ended up sort of stomping back to his room and, and there was sort of a note on the door, and you, you yeah. probably can't repeat what was on it now, but <clears throat> it, it was it was a bit of
1: aggro basically. There was whenever and I you know I was. Yeah. I'm not really qualified to talk too much about Alex he was in my life for six months mm. I mean he was in my life pretty daily for six months but there was an aura Yeah. there was a feeling that if Alex was in the room even if you couldn't see him at any moment something could kick off mm. now I'm not sure that most of the time anything did kick off but there was always this kind Mm. of and I'm also not sure that he didn't enjoy creating that atmosphere you know he certainly was very clever Mm. and he knew he was very aware of the situation he was very aware of put a snooker cue in Alex's hand and putting him in an environment around a snooker table he could still command respect Mm. whereas probably he'd lost that outside so yeah it was a it was a pretty emotional time Mm. Um, and you know, I say that. You know, I I took a lot of criticism for Alex playing that night in Sheffield. Um, anyone who knew Alex pretty much would have told you that I had no say in it. If mm. Alex Higgins wanted to turn up and play in the Crucible and discharge him from hospital, I wasn't going to be able <laughs> to stop him. Mm. You can imagine, you know, he thought there was a row then. The riot fighter said, "Alex, you're not playing." Mm. And of course, we had we had a sellout audience out there who wanted to. I mean, in their minds, it's how relevant it is. They wanted to say one final goodbye, and it really was one final goodbye to mm-hmm. Alex. Um, so yeah, it is. It was. It was an emotional time, and it was. Uh, it was a pretty stressful time. Mm. <laughs> um, but uh, it's. I, I remember. I remember kind of wondering whether I had an unbelievable thing here I'd created, or whether this was going to all badly end in tears Mm.
0: and you 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 start to build a tour but what you did was you started to get maybe some more reliable legends on board the likes of Dennis Taylor Cliff Thorburn these people who for years have been steeped in exhibitions
1: and some ultimate professionals but also still massive names yeah and uh, you know I think I say that without Alex Higgins snooker legends wouldn't have been created there is no doubt but the fact that he got kind of replaced after one show has allowed it to grow into mm. what it's become now because i think realistically at some point across 17 shows in that first season uh, no matter you can put the term exhibition on it these guys you put higgins and thorburn across a snooker <laughs> table mm. you're going to get probably them trying even harder mm. against each other than they would have done in 1980 mm. and, and the same thing with even now you, you put jimmy and steven it might be all very nice and VIPs and handshakes and stuff. The moment the game is on, they are trying as hard as ever mm. to beat each other. Mm.
0: And what was it like, kind of working with them? Because obviously you've grown up; they're kind of your idols in a way. As a big snooker fan, now you're having you're working with them, but you're having to be professional. You can't kind of be a fan too much, can you?
1: No, absolutely. And I think that was because, as well as kind of doing the theatre shows I was directing some pantomimes at the time which had some fairly big names in it you know I've been I've been used to being able to work with egos and I knew how important it was kind of not to have one of your own yeah I mean over the kind of the whole year since 2010 you probably can count on one hand the amount of times I've probably sat down and talked about it personally mm. I've not tended to be one that rushes in front of a camera and tries to self-promote. I get my kicks out of of seeing other people's enjoyment Mm. and also being able to, in effect you know, you can list the players some of these guys never thought they'd get to go back and play in the Crucible again. They thought that had passed them by. So yeah, it was it was very um, I never intended to tour with it and there was a you know, my my personal life probably struggled because I was away so much but it was after that first show that I realised that I did have to be there because, in effect, my team were children's theatre company teams. Mm. They didn't know snooker, they didn't know the sport. So I was the conduit really between the event and, and the players. So I think that what I did, I had unbelievable support from day one. Um, you know, there was no doubt that they could all see value in what I was creating. But I'd like to think that we always treated them fairly. And Because Without them I, You know I had no product I had no show It's not like you can Like in a play You can put an yeah, understudy on Sure yeah. You know They, they are the name Selling the tickets yeah, yeah And one I think One important
0: decision You made as well Was to get John Virgo involved Because he sort of Compared a lot of these And he's like Obviously he's been on big break, he's been hmm. in the media as much as he's been known as a player And
1: he's an important component of it as, as well Massive, and, and, and John will say himself, he was very reluctant to try the live commentary to start with I felt that um, we had to set ourselves up as being something a bit different You weren't going to see snooker of the standard of O'Sullivan, Selby's, Robertson's at those time. So what we were going to provide, we were going to provide entertainment Now, with all due respect to Jimmy and Stephen, they're not going to stop a break to tell a gag and entertain the audience. You put Dennis out there, you put a microphone on him, then you've got years and years of craft, I call it. Mm. They know how to work a crowd. Mm. So what JV was able to provide is not only an unrivaled knowledge of the game, because no one could say he didn't know what he was talking about, but also he had that theatre background himself and John and I have sat down so many times and talked about our pantomime days because yeah, yeah. obviously he did it for yeah, a number yeah. of years yeah. and he gets it he gets live theatre and John can express himself he knows when to tell a gag he knows when to keep quiet and he does he provides that uh, the link between the play and the audience mm. and we have him doing his trick shots and sometimes we'll get people out of the audience so yeah. we want people we knew it had to be something a bit different mm. and I think more than anyone JV is the person that has provided that mm.
0: I think it's worth sort of looking at how much planning goes into these things because it, it's true as well with the pro tour I think a lot of people including a lot of players don't kind of understand you know they turn up and it's all the tables are there everything's there yeah. they don't understand that there's been months where yeah. people have been working to get it all to
1: happen so how much sort of work goes in even to one, one evening oh massive and, and again you know generally gotcha. you will book a theatre six months out yeah. you will have all the marketing PR uh, Even nowadays, I mean, it's harder to sell tickets now than it ever was. There there is no doubt that people have so much choice of what to do with their money. There is so much snooker about. You know, it's not a case that when we first started, before Barry, six tournaments a year. So in theory, there was a lot of people that would probably follow the tour round because they could only see an O'Sullivan six times a year. Now, if you want to. 30 tournaments there's there's so much snooker no. that there's plenty of reason not to get up and actually go to a theatre mm. because you can you don't even got it on your TV you've got it on your phone your iPad you can have it and whenever you want mm. on demand so there's a lot of planning and also we had to be very uh, from my background and you will understand this as well dark time in theatres cost money yeah so therefore I had to develop uh a model that basically was a one-day stand because I couldn't afford to have days when there was no money coming through the door in theaters because they're still going to charge you for their crews, their time everything so we had to design the show that it could arrive in the morning and play that evening now we've gone one step further we can arrive early in the morning and play by one o'clock but to the the key is for those people walking in as I say they'd probably be shocked at how the place had looked only a few hours before sure. um, so I know it's something that has, has helped us be very viable and it's something that I think by Jason Ferguson recently said he said you kind of opened our eyes up to about it that you know you can be a nimble model if you think nah, I'm not carting 11 tables around right. so you know it's a very different <laughs> yeah. model yeah. but you are exactly right I can I can only imagine what a table fitter thinks when he's probably worked through the <laughs> night setting up 12 tables mm. to have a top professional go on social media and, uh, and slander his work because mm. mm. you know they ne- they've never missed a ball and <laughs> it's all the tables always rolled off yeah. and it's like yeah and it must be very disheartening. Yeah.
0: Okay, well, so you worked with Alex Siggins, who was a firebrand, you worked with Jimmy White, who, you know, everyone loves Jimmy, but he's not always necessarily the most reliable, so you thought, I know what I'll do, I'll get an easy life, I'll work with Ronnie O'Sullivan. <laughs> so, so so, how did that start? I mean, it makes sense, obviously, commercially to get
1: Ronnie involved, but how did that kind of happen? So that came about because, and again, uh, you know, I have to thank Jimmy, you know, we sadly we lost Alex, and there is no doubt we, in effect, it's like, Any pop band losing its lead singer, Mm. the top of the bill had gone in effect. Mm. Um, Jimmy invited me along to a charity night he was doing with Ronnie in Colchester. And he said, I've told Ronnie about you. Ronnie hates exhibitions. That was (laughs) what he actually said to me. He said, But I think the way you're doing them, the way it's kind of set up and we're protected, I think that Ronnie would be interested. Mm. So, of course, I went along thinking, I'm going to leave tonight with a booking with Ronnie O'Sullivan Ronnie O'Sullivan is going to join <laughs> Snooker Legends mm. so I turned up and he quite clearly had not a great deal of interest in being there mm. um, he was raising money for a good family friend which was a very, you know, a very noble cause I think he'd have happily paid double what they were going to raise not to have to actually be there yeah. but what happened was his, uh, his son was there and Little Ronnie was very young, and so the moment they found out I did Thomas the Tank Engine, which was Little Ronnie's favorite TV show at the time, suddenly that was the kind of, I mean it was just a stroke of luck, Ronnie went, Little Ronnie loves that, I've got to come and see your show. So we arranged for him to, you know, I was thinking come and see the show, Put it in your front garden if you want. (laughs) So Ronnie came along to Dartford with little Ronnie, saw the scale of the production, which was, you know, Thomas was probably the biggest production we did. We were a massive theatre in Dartford. We'd sold out three or four days. And I think he saw that from a production point of view, I knew what I was doing. So he went, he said, look, we'll try a couple of shows. So in 2011, we we planned to do one in Blackburn. The day after the shootout had been in Blackpool. Mm. So that was our first one. And, uh, you know, we'd very much got used to our format where we start at seven. The interval comes at about quarter to nine. They play the final after ten past nine. We're done probably quarter to ten. Autographs, up past ten. Three and a half hours, good night out. Mm. Jimmy and Ronnie turned up. Six centuries in nine <laughs> frames. I'm looking at my watch. It's 20 to nine, right. and we're done. yeah. yeah. And I'm thinking, goodness me mm. But, you know, it was what it was Everyone had had an unbelievable night But for me, from a kind of wanting to provide value for money I thought, I'm going to have to make these matches a bit longer With these two involved mm. um, So that's how it started
0: And you ended up spending a lot of time with Ronnie Because mm. he, he, he started to want to do exhibitions And he did a lot And you spent a lot of time with him And um, what comes out I think, like I mentioned, Alex and Jimmy Who, I think they're authentic wild men of the sport They've, <coughs> they've lived a life I think Ronnie often gets bracketed with them, but you kind of make the point he's not like out every night drinking at all. You actually say he's quite a boring bloke yeah, in some ways.
1: Ab- absolutely, and this is this is the biggest kind of misconception mm. about Ronnie O'Sullivan. I'm mean, very lucky; he's become you know one of my best friends over the years. We've had some unbelievable times together, and for me, those unbelievable times haven't been when I've been at his side winning worlds, masters, or UKs. So that <clears throat> that will be the quiet times, mm. and it might be you know. A quiet meal somewhere, having a laugh on a motorway. You know, you know what it's like with exhibitions and stuff. It's you, 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 you put a performance on, and then it's kind of like uh, there's a bit of a downtime sure. as soon as you finish your performance. And you might have two or three hours in the car, mm. and uh, you know those times are the probably the, the most times I miss from not being with him day to day now because you know. We'd have to take it in turns to put on the music and abuse each other's music <laughs> choices. We'd get the big munchies, which mm. for him, you know, what he's like, yeah, you know, with yeah. his eating, yeah. and then I'd be ruining him with donuts in the car and yeah. God knows what else. So, uh, they, they're the they're the brilliant times, and you know, and, and as I say, our our friendship has survived kind of six years of almost day to day, and it was basically management. Let's not, you know, we can dress up. So I was kind of looking after sort of everything on his day to day at the events, mm. sometimes managing quite a tough relationship with the governing body mm. obviously he is their prize asset their most commercially valuable player and at the same time he has obligations to the sport so sometimes you kind of I felt my job was, I called it kind of filtering the chaos mm. you know, there was <laughs> needed to obviously make sure that he was well prepared enough to do the very best he could but also at the same time try and make sure that his employers so to speak were were also getting as much value as they could mm. in a way that because everyone wanted to see him win mm. you know the the world snooker were not going to go out of their way to do anything that would not give Ronnie O'Sullivan the best chance of winning any tournament he's in mm. because whether people like it or not at this moment in time and for quite a while he will drive the highest ratings he'll drive the biggest interest and he will bring people into watching snooker who probably are not snooker fans Mm. so it was um they they were great times but Mm. you know i had to be very very wary of uh, when i look back what do i kind of want to look back on the fact that i carried ronnie's cues around for five Mm. or six years or the fact that i i kind of tried to make my own mark and build my own thing and, and eventually Hopefully You know Leave behind this legacy Of the World Seniors Tour mm. So um, You know We still do our shows together We still speak all the time And it's uh, But And as I say Without him by my side For a vast majority of Last season He won five tournaments So yeah. Maybe I should have stopped him here earlier
0: <laughs> But the point is I guess in terms of the legends He obviously Getting him on board help drive audiences and you also started to they weren't just exhibitions you had like Legends Cup and started to I mean you you had an event on Eurosport and yeah things things were starting to kind of take off really.
1: Yeah I mean the key was always um, for me it was we had to keep evolving so whereas and again that was from a theatre just the same as you know, I look back to you know a pantomime, which comes to a theatre every year. It never brings the same cast every year. There has to be a reason for people to come again. So we would introduce different players, different formats. Um, I love the idea of creating a Ryder Cup, which we did first, and it's been unbelievably sort of successful. And now, kind of world snooker have it again. And I used to love the Nations Cup yeah, back yeah. in the old days. Yeah. And I think that's something that you don't get a lot in what is primarily an individual sport. And when you see these guys come together and play as a team, um, I actually think that they enjoy sharing the workload. So Legends Cup was great, and obviously the breakthrough onto Eurosport um, was probably the one time that I thought, okay, well now we're kind of, this is it, we're going to be televised, Mm -hmm. we're going to be doing our own stuff. Um, And it probably... It was a bit of a reality check when that didn 't happen mm. um, you know we'd done the viewing figures, we had an unbelievable line up, but you know realistically, I understood if I stood back from it <clears throat> that we were probably going to be in danger of becoming an alternative for some of the major broadcasters to what world Snooker were doing. Mm. I understood that mm. well, that brings
0: us on t- neatly onto <clears throat> your sort of relationship with world Snooker and in particular. With Barry Hearn, who, who came along in sort of 2010, to be world snooker chairman, and you tell a story about you sort of go to meet him, and he kind of he plays you a little bit, doesn't he? He kind of oh. he, he was he was sort of having a go at someone, and he left the door open so you he could hear it. So already you're kind of on tenterhooks. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, no, he, he dumbed me up like a kid. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, he, he really did. I mean, it's kind of like uh, I have an unbelievable respect for Barry, mm. and uh, you know. Trust me, there are rhinoceroses in the world that wish they had skin as thick as Barry. Um, what he's, he's taught me a lot of things without actually telling me. Mm. You know, I now understand that no matter what you do, you can't please everyone. Mm. And I'm a pretty sensitive person. Mm. So I wasn't very good in the early days at uh, responding to criticism or feeling hurt. Because I, you know, I understand that you can't please everyone. You've got to just, it's it's the same with promoting, and we're on a very, very different level, but we're both promoters who've put our hand in our pocket to risk our own money. Mm. Um, And there's a rare breed of people that have the kind of belief, I guess, to do that. Mm. Because trust me, we don't get it right all the time. Mm. And you know, know, Barry will honestly sit down as well and say there'll be plenty of times when he's put on events and lost money. Uh, there's plenty of times I've put on events and lost money Um, and the key is that it's the same event so putting on an event that makes you lots of money doesn't suddenly make you a better person than you were (laughs) than when you put on the event that lost money yeah and I think for me the key has been to never try and feel one way about it either Mm -hmm. way Mm -hmm. sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't work Mm -hmm. you know
0: Mm -hmm. but it seems now you've got a a good relationship certainly with the WPBSA and you sort of started the the World Seniors or, or revived it but now you're gonna be working with them effectively on a tour so tell us about how that kind of started
1: yeah I think it had, um, I think I'd become I was becoming a problem <laughs> and, and I think I think that that's the truth you know I was kind of whereas world snooker don't necessarily have any responsibility to the former players in respect the WPVsa kind of does mm. um, you know they're the reason that people now can Go out and win professional tournaments Which is in effect life changing money Is in some part Due to what these guys did In the sure. 80s and 90s yep. they, you know, they all played their part in yep. it And all got paid well for doing it So yep. you know, I, don't, I don't underestimate that But I think that yeah, i come to a point where there was a, There's a lot of Former professionals out there Who Fell off tour and have had nothing to go to. Mm. They probably started playing snooker when they were, when as soon as they left school. A lot of them didn't have a, a big education behind them or a trade, and so therefore, there's very little work, coaching, or exhibition now. It's certainly not enough to sustain a full-time job, and it's littered with hard luck stories of you know, former professionals who fell off tour, and, and what do they do? Mm. What do they do? And I think that you know potentially what we're starting now could lead on to something where suddenly there is an alternative. It's going to take a few years to get there. You know I, I understand that you know the World Sneaker Tour can offer them 15 million pounds in prize money next season. We've got 200 grand, but it's 200 grand that wasn't there before. Mm. And there will come a time when the players who are over 40 on tour, who perhaps are struggling to make ends meet might just look at the world seniors tour as a viable alternative and think well where am i better placed trying to earn some money because if we start getting and it will happen we've got 25,000 pounds for our world champion this year we start getting into the 30s 40s 50,000 pounds then realistically how many of those players who are lower ranked are earning that in a season yeah. and do you really want to be playing mark selby first round do you really want to come up sure. against you know it's it's yeah. a so so our job and this is where the WPBSA have been fantastic, and you know Jason gets it. Um, Sean Murphy's come on the board, gets it. He understands that this sh- should be their kind of pension if they choose to play on it. There's no, you know, we, some some players might finish their professional career, and if they've done well enough, they might never want to see a snooker table again. But I, what I've known from the what I've seen from the amateurs coming back is that they all they've all got their hunger back. Mm.
0: Um, well I think it, it kind of, if you've been playing snookers, most of these guys would have been since they were kids You know, maybe 8, nine, ten years of age It's in your blood, it doesn't leave you They may have drifted off off the tour, had to get other jobs But they probably would still have been playing in leagues or whatever It never, it never kind of leaves you does it And now suddenly
1: they have a chance to be competitive again Yeah and also a time to kind of see each other again sure. I mean it was amazing the first season we turned up at a club and I, I think it might have even been Barry Pinches turned up with a lot of old Pro-Am draw sheets right. from the days and they were all gathered around. Some of these people hadn't seen each other for 20, 30, I, I know um, uh, Stefan Masrosis who played on our tour mm. last year. He turned up at an event at which Jason Pegram was there. was mm. They hadn't seen each other for 30 years <laughs> and Stefan used to live in his house. Wow. Yeah. So you know these guys are rekindling sort of friendships. Mm. Um, we're a bit corny about it we kind of say look you're renewing your old rivalries and making new memories but that's what's been lovely to see the camaraderie because they were all in the trenches together in Mm. Blackpool yes most of them never made it Mm. um, but they never lost their love for the sport Mm. and it's almost like I say it's it's dramatic to say people who've actually you know been away a war together and there's that camaraderie and brotherhood but it kind of feels like that from Mm. the outside sometimes Mm. You see people, it's just being in the slipstream, talking about the old times. you know And they can all remember every result. They can all remember every time they played each other. Mm. And uh, that's been a huge part of this as well. Mm. And the WPBSA have made a big commitment. And so, for me, it's only fair that I meet that commitment. Which is probably why, you know, for the past 12, 18 months, Snooker Legends has very much kind of taken a bit of a back seat. Yeah. Because this needs all my energy if it's going to get to where I think it can get.
0: Mm. So in the in the initial sort of next year how many how many events are there gonna be? So we've got six
1: ranking events this season Mm. and we've got fifteen qualifying events. Mm. So that gives anyone over forty a chance to kind of win a win a match at the Crucible or Mm. and then of course our UK champion and our world champion get to go to Sheffield to play in the World Professional, Mm. which again is an unbelievable opportunity that Uh, Part of being in the WPVSA family has given us We would look to grow that I'd like to see you know 50,000 for our world champion within two or three seasons. I think it's doable. I think what we have to be careful of and what I Have to be I have a certain responsibility for is We don't go too big too quickly and then have to shrink Mm. It should be a natural progression where we can improve each year and it might be easier to throw all your eggs in one basket and make a huge headline about a big prize for a tournament but if next season you come back and say mm, yeah. it's probably only going to be half that this mm-hmm. year we don't want to go in that direction mm-hmm. so it's kind of it's steady growth and it's uh, we must also plan for a time where we can't rely on the likes of Dennis Taylor sure. and Cliff Thorburn and that element to it the World Senior Tour will have to stand on its own two feet with its own ranking list and we'll have to kind of Sell tickets based on the players that are coming through.
0: Yeah, you got Stephen Hendry involved, and that's no small thing because he'd kind of he had put his cue down. He retired very very famously, but you sort of enticed him back. Or or, or, I mean, how did that kind of work? Because I I got the feeling he would just not play
1: again. I think he was. I think he'd reached a point where he'd he'd gone to China to play the Black Eight, Mm. which I think in 2012 was probably still quite a new game, Mm. and so obviously he was able to go to China and. He was sh- you know, just reached the last eight of the World Championship, I think, so he was fairly sharp and could compete in what's a very different game, heavy balls. And, and all this
0: uh,
1: but really what quickly happened, I think, as the game grew, is that these Chinese kids became pretty good at this yeah. game. Yeah. Stephen was only going out six or seven times a year to play them, and I think just as snooker, what was frustrating for Stephen was that he, he fell into more of an ambassadorial role for the sport. Mm as the most decorated player but he wasn't able to compete in that sport and the one thing Stephen Hendry hates more than ever is yeah. not feeling he'd compete. Yeah. So I think that it was clear that if we could come up with the right vehicle Stephen was going to consider playing. Um, the Last year he'd already had commitments in so on at least two of the tournaments he, was, he came back the day before from China. He didn't have time to prepare. And he didn't just come back the day before from China. He'd spent a week bashing nine balls around for, you know, not good preparation mm. to come back to the, to the snooker. This year, by his own admission, he says, you know, it feels a bit more serious, a bit more. Um, and there probably isn't the expectation. Last year it was like, oh, Stephen Henry's only got to turn up and he's going to win. Sure, yeah, yeah. Now we're past that now because people have seen the quality of the amateur players. Mm. I've seen that we've got Jimmy and Ken playing in them so in some respects I think this might actually be better for Stephen this year Mm. because it won't all be about him Mm. and people will kind of understand that he can't just turn up and expect to win Mm.
0: Everyone listening to this, there'll be snooker fans will know the name Stephen Hendry who wouldn't necessarily know the name Aaron Canavan but he won the World Seniors Championship What a moment for him, I mean incredible the sort of thing I guess he just never thought could have happened really
1: It was if I could have have sat down and and I said, Right, I've got four events next season and who can win? You know, uh, Jimmy White winning again in front of his son Mm. was unbelievable. Steve Davis stepping in for Stephen Hendry in Goffs and getting the trophy from Alex's daughter was unbelievable. Mm. Cliff Thorburn at (laughs) seventy years old Mm. winning in the crucible. But the biggest story of all and it justified this whole concept was forty two year old Carvalater from Jersey, never been a professional, played club snooker, put the hours in, entered a tournament, won it, went to Scunthorpe and had a black ball respot mm. for the World Seniors Championship and ten thousand quid. I mean, it's uh, I couldn't have written that script, mm. you know, no, no one could. Mm. And he's he is part of Q Sports history now, mm. which is bizarre.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and I think it kind of shows that, you know, because this book has quite a few highs and lows. It's a bit of a roller coaster, but I think it shows that you you feel you're right to have stuck with it. There are times where you could have maybe mm. just knocked it on the head, does something else, gone back to the theatre or whatever. But you stuck with it, and now you seem very satisfied with, with kind of where you are.
1: Yeah, I think I'm I'm I feel justified in that we we stuck at it. Um, I take nothing for granted. It's still very hard, and I said in some respects. Partnering with the WPBS, I feel a greater responsibility. Um, I feel very indebted to the guys that were there at the start. And I think that they've shown me incredible loyalty. And I think that over the next few years, things will have to evolve and change. This can't be about Jason Francis. Mm. You know, the World Seniors Tour needs to kind of operate on its own two feet. And it shouldn't just be about one person. Um, And I have to make sure that the right people are in place so that before this needs to go on well past when I'm finished in snooker and the things we're doing now and over the next few seasons not instantly should put things in place for that um, we're looking at some you know, great projects outside of the ranking events some things we can do with the legends you know we've got a we've got a lovely idea to you know we're gonna bring pot black back and it's gonna happen we're, we're gonna do it we've, we've got the old trophy we've got the legends we're gonna it's it's just a matter of time to, to find the right place to do it but we will we will look to use these legends to go to other territories to help grow the sport and again, we've got a responsibility to do that, and this is where these guys can be um, fantastic. They, really they can inspire a generation. Um, a young child may come to one of our events in a foreign country that doesn't have a ranking event, meet Stephen Hendry or Jimmy White, take up snooker, and who knows? Um, so,
0: so that that I guess is the
1: long-term plan. Okay, well,
0: the book is called Snooker Legends On the Road and Off the Table with the Games Greatest by Jason Francis. Jason, thanks for being on the podcast. It's been great to talk to you.
1: Really appreciate it. uh, Cheers.
0: Sports Social Podcast Network.